I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. Women have to find this balance between, you know, being assertive, but not aggressive and, you know, being compassionate, but not emotional. Um, you know, there's these, these tags that are put on women um, that are just different with the same action of a man. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, I think you're going to love this week's interview. We have Stacy Ryan, who is the COO of School of Rock. You probably even want to watch this episode on our Second in Command podcast YouTube channel. Um, Stacy has been building the School of Rock globally. She joined, they had 16 corporate locations. They now have 35, or sorry, 40 corporate locations. They have 353 locations worldwide operating in 15 countries. This is a education system where they teach kids and adults, their oldest clients, about 85 years old, how to play instruments, how to play in a rock band, how to play music together. But they also do a massive amount of work around mental health and helping people reconnect with themselves. It's not why people join. It's not what they sell, but that's the impact they have on the world. She's also going to talk about women in the C-suite and women and how they need to lean in and be stronger as executives. You'll love the episode. Lots of great lessons in here, and I had fun recording it. We'll see you on the inside, and you'll, this might even be one you'll want to share with your list as well. So, Stacy, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while now, and um, for a reason that it, it's a strange one. I was sitting at a dinner in Canada about 10 years ago. And I was having dinner with a woman who was one of the Canadian, like the MTV. She was our, our Much Music video jockeys back in the day of like, you know, Much Music videos. Her name was Erica M. And Erica was part of, or I think her husband might have been part of the School of Rock in Canada in some way. And I was like, what's the School of Rock? Is this where like people go and learn how to be musicians or something? And she's like, no. And, and she started telling me about it. And I was pretty fascinated with it. It was a really cool business and a really cool brand, but it had a really cool cause and a purpose. And I don't know whether I was the last person to hear about it or the first person to hear about it, but I would imagine there's lots of others out there that don't know what School of Rock is. So why don't we start there, uh, which I don't normally do, but why don't we start off with, talk to us about what is School of Rock? What have you two been building or you've been building for the last eight years? You know, what's your core purpose as an organization, et cetera? Yeah, um, I love that question because not everybody does know about School of Rock and everybody needs to know about School of Rock. 
Um, you know, in my almost nine years here with the organization, it's gone from a school of rock like the movie to now it's like, oh, yes, yeah, school of rock. I know someone who goes or my child goes. So school of rock is, you know, the most revolutionary music education program in the world. Um, so what we do is we teach kids how to play musical instruments by putting them in bands and on stages. Um, so we start with the song first approach. The theory comes in afterwards. And there's a, you know, commitment to your bandmates to practice, to learn your songs. There's a social component to it. We have one of the most passionate communities I have ever been a part of and am honored to be a part of it. And, you know, the magic that happens when you focus on the music and everything else is just is what it is. You know, we don't care about the other stuff, your dress, the color of your skin, the color of your hair, none of that. Like, let's just learn how to play great music together. Um, that's really what School of Rock is. So today we are 365 schools worldwide, excuse me, no, 353 schools worldwide, 15 countries. Um, and uh, we're not close to done yet. So we currently serve over 60,000 students worldwide and are excited to keep the growth coming. It's extraordinary. So are you a franchise model? Are you a license? Is it all corporate locations? Can you walk us through some of the model? Yeah, that's a great question. So we today own and operate 47 locations, um, all within domestic US. Um, when I came, we owned and operated 16. Um, so we are true believers in our concept. Um, we like to acquire strong schools, great schools, and to influence. And then the remaining schools worldwide are all franchised. Okay. How does your franchise work? Is there a franchise fee, a royalty? I, I've built three franchise organizations over the years, one in the very boring industry of house painting, college pro painters, one in the very boring industry of automotive repair. It was called Gerber Auto Collision in the US and Boyd Auto Body in Canada. And then one in the worst industry possible, garbage. Uh, where we did 1-800-GOT-JUNK, you get a sexy business. You're doing like rock and roll. I mean, holy shit. Like, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, you at least franchise the one. Only the rock and roll, Cameron. We don't want the sex and the drugs. <laughs> you franchise the one that's legal. Yeah, you franchise the legal part of the cool stuff, right? So, exactly. Yeah, how do your fr how's your franchise model work? Yeah, so it, it is a franchise fee. Um, of about $50,000 just under. And that gives you the rights to own and operate a school of rock location within a targeted territory. Um, so with, with that, you're able to market, to play, and to own and operate that school. Um, and it will be the only school within that territory with the purchase. And what's a territory? Is it like a DMA? Is it a city, a metro? What's, how, how big are your territories? Yeah, that, that'll vary, Cameron. You, we typically will look at drive time. We'll look at natural barriers like rivers, bridges, highways. Um, we have a very sophisticated system that we use, uh, um, SIMS that you may be familiar with, that helps us identify, you know, what is the territory? What are the demographics within it? And then, you know, local information also, local knowledge from people will we'll go out and will drive territories and ensure that they make sense. Um, so every territory will be a little bit differently, you know, size wise, a territory in Arkansas is slightly larger than the territory in, you know, New York, uh, New York City. So it, it'll vary on a couple of components. It's funny, I remember cutting territories for college pro painters back in 1993, 30 years ago in Seattle. And I 
had these massive, massive maps that I lay out on the kitchen table and I was color coding them with highlighters. And then years later, we were doing 1-800 Got Junk and I was cutting territories. And I did Washington, D.C. And my franchisee in Washington started laughing to me. He goes, you know, this territory makes no sense. And I said, why? I mean, you've got a couple zip codes on one side of the river and a couple zip codes on the other side of the river. And he goes, there's no bridge. I'm like, well, it shows there's a bridge. He goes, yeah, it's a fucking train bridge. It's not a car bridge. You can't drive. He goes, you got to go 10 miles south to go across. I'm like, I had no idea. Um, Yeah, cutting a territory is not as simple as it sounds. Yeah, luckily uh, for me, we have an incredible franchise development team um, that is incredibly knowledgeable in this area and use the sophistication of all of those combined resources to, to cut the territories in a way that makes sense. Now, you mentioned that it's, is it only for kids or are there adults that are in School of Rock as well? And Yeah, so I think our oldest student right now, I believe, is late 80s. Um, I could be wrong, um, but uh, we have a very um, strong adult program also. Um, you know, especially down in South America and our schools down in Brazil and in Chile, they have a very strong adult program, but we offer the same thing, you know, adults come in and they, you know, pick their instrument that they want to learn and we put them in a band with other adults and they're going out and doing gigs and performing. Um, so it's the exact same program, but geared towards adults. Um, so we go anywhere from, you know, preschool age up, up and through adulthood. That's amazing. All right. So going from 16 locations to 353 locations over the last eight years, I can't imagine that the growth has been easy the whole time. So what what have been some of the um, the lessons from the edge or the, you know, what were some of the tough moments that you went through and how did you learn from them as a company? Yeah. So when I came into School of Rock, we were about 80 total locations and 16 of them were company owned. Okay. So within that growth, you know, focusing specifically on the company-owned growth, um, well, actually both sides of it. I mean, Cameron, it was really just looking at the team and the support and reevaluating it. So, you know, I have led a couple of, of reorgs um, within School of Rock now, um, specifically when I had taken over franchise operations, I was already running company school operations and merging those two together into one team. Previously, there had been just a separate team for company schools, a separate team for franchise schools. So there is this common misperception of what are you doing in your company schools that you're not telling us franchise owners. And, you know, there was just a a level of mistrust. And there was also just, you know, opportunity where the right hand maybe didn't know what the left hand was saying. Um, and you know, our goal is to drive success in all of our locations, whether they're corporate owned or, or franchise owned. Um, so when I was asked to take over the franchise operations, it was really important to me to find a way to blend those two teams into one, to have that one single voice approach. And what it allowed us to do is as a team, give comfort to our franchisees that they knew whatever we were doing or advising that that company-owned school in their next town over, we were giving them the same stuff, the same resources, the same communications, the same templates, the same approach, same advice. Um, So that was one of the first things. And we structured it in a way that it was just one voice over that entire territory. So for the Northeast, it was one person that ran our company locations and consulted with our franchisees. 
what happened is as we grew, um, bandwidth became an issue, um, you know, on both sides. Company-owned locations take a lot more time and dedication. Um, you know, in a company school, if we lose the manager, you know, it's likely one of my team members have to go and sit at the desk and make sure that the school is running well. Where in a franchise situation, if they lose a manager, it's like, mm, okay, well, here's some tactics you can try, you know, that that may be helpful. Um, but we're not going and filling in. So it's a, a different level of support. Um, so as we started seeing that bandwidth was an issue, what we did is created a, a an additional role that focuses specifically on the company school operations, but still reports up to our director of operations. So we still have that same one voice approach, but now with the appropriate amount of bandwidth. Um, so. You know, anytime you're in an organization and you see the growth like we have, the most important thing is to look in the mirror and assess and say, okay, where where are we falling short? Um, where can we be better? And I am blessed to have an incredibly committed team. Um, there's 19 people on my team and all but one started in a school of rock themselves. Um, as a general manager or a music director. And the only one that did not was on my team at my last organization. And as soon as I was in a position to build a team, he was the first person that I went and recruited and said, hey, you need to come here with me. So it's been, you know, several years now that he's been at School of Rock. Um, but what it's allowed us to do is create this, this amazing career path. But there's also you know, like 200 years of School of Rock history on the operations team. So when I first came in, you know, often I would hear the phrase like, why do we do it this way? And it's like, well, we've always done it this way. Um, so, you know, we worked really hard on changing our mindset and instilling a rule like we can never say that. That can never be our answer. Um, you know, if the question is, why do we do it that way? We don't know why other than because we've always done it that way. The answer is like, you know what? I'm not really sure. And that's going to be our trigger to look at it and reevaluate and say, okay, is there a better way that we can be doing this? Let's strip it down and let's rebuild. And that's what a lot of, of the team here did, the leadership team as a whole. We stripped a lot of things down and rebuilt School of Rock so that we now have a foundation that we are prepared to grow on for, you know, many, many years to come. It's interesting. I remember when my when my children were young, I've got two boys that are now 22 and 20. And I remember when they were three and one, four and two, it was why, 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 why? Like I would give them the answer, but why? And then I give them the next answer, why? And I think leadership teams do need to examine that because we've always done it that way. Well, why? Why did we start it back then? And why haven't we changed it now? And why is it still working? And why haven't we iterated? It's also interesting you pointed out and, and how I don't understand why franchisees feel like we wouldn't tell them the absolute best systems out of greed alone, that if we give them the best systems, they're going to produce more, which means we make more royalties and they're going to be happier and they're going to validate more. Like, we're not going to keep the good stuff from you. If anything, we're going to try to force feed you with the good stuff, right? Um, yeah, I don't understand. It's, in, it's a really interesting predicament. So one of the things that I, that I find, it's very hard at times to manage the franchisee relationship because we can't fire them like we can fire an underperforming employee. 
So what are some of the lessons that you've learned in leadership from working with some of the, the troublesome franchise partners, the ones you can't fire? Have you learned anything from them that have made you a better leader with employees? Absolutely. And, you know, to, to your previous point, like why do franchisees not automatically assume that we have their best interest in mind? I, I've learned, I've found that franchising is this incredible, very delicate scale of, you know, authority and partnership. And, you know, as a franchisor, there's authority in regards to, okay, you have to submit your P&L. You have to have, you know, this image on your walls. Like these are the things you have to do. But there's also that partnership that these are entrepreneurs and they want to, you know, express themselves and do their own things as well. So it's, it's finding this very delicate balance and ensuring that that scale always stays balanced. And if something happens to tip it in one direction, you have to then do something to counteract it back in the other way to maintain the strength in that relationship and the power in it. Um, there is a, an article. I don't remember who wrote it. Um, I apologize, but it's it's the six stages of of franchise. Um, you may be familiar. Greg Greg Nathan from Australia. Yes, I. It's fantastic. I love that. It's one of the first things I send to anyone who is stepping into a franchising management advisory role. You need to understand this, and I think that was a real game changer for me because. I encourage my team and myself also that when there there is a disagreement, when something is happening, to say, okay, well, what phase are they in? You know, if I look at this, where where are they? Because that can and should adjust the way that you approach the conversation and the problem solving. Um, you know, we we have learned a, a lot with School of Rock. You know, seven years ago it was a very different organization where there. There was some turmoil, you know, from the the system to the franchisor, and that has completely reversed that there is, you know, a very healthy partnership, and that's been a lot of work. You know, Rob, the CEO, and myself went on a full listening campaign, like, just tell us everything, you know, that we could be doing better. And, you know, I think the most important thing is remembering that these are business people, these are entrepreneurs, these are our partners. Um, one of the biggest, most important rules at School of Rock is we we are never allowed to speak disparagingly of a franchisee. So, you know, if someone is is going at something, I can't say, hey, they're being a real pain in the ass. Um, what I can say is, hey, they're really incredibly passionate about this topic right now. And, you know, it, it's we need to give it more attention. Um, but changing that whole approach, that whole mentality, because we we need each other. You know, our success is their success. Their failure is our failure. It goes in both directions. Yeah, you had a very similar approach. We used to call ours franchise partners instead of franchisees because we wanted to think and we thought of our customer as our joint customer. It was they weren't our our franchise partner wasn't our our customer. They were our partner and the end user was our joint customer. And then yeah, we also kind of recognized as well that the that six stages of franchising talks about the natural evolution of a franchisee, much like the evolution of a human. Like when we're teenagers, we all think our parents are idiots. And then once we move out of the house and we have kids of our own, we recognize our parents were just trying their best and we kind of have some new respect for them, right? Um, It's weird how it all just happens. We even taught our franchise partners the six stages of franchising model. We gave them the article. We made sure they understood it so that when they were pissed off or frustrated or 
starting to come around, um, you know, when they were moving from the glee stage to the fee stage, et cetera, they understood it. It made sense to them. It's, it's cool that you're going through that. So how about the international franchise partners and the international employees? I mean, it's interesting to have a perspective of operating, I think you said, in 13 or 15 countries. That's very different, too. You know, working with a, a group in, you know, Brazil and a group in Canada, they're very, very different. Can you walk us through some of the lessons that you've learned around business and leadership um, that's more global? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we have learned is that we we are not great at um, owning and operating international locations. Um, so a few years back, we actually uh, changed our model and we have master franchise organizations. Um, so there is a master franchise team who owns and operates, you know, Brazil, Spain, and Portugal. Um, we have another owner who owns and operates all of LATAM minus Brazil. So he has Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru. Um, and basically, those are the experts in those areas, right? They know the local laws, the cultures, um, the type of community that it is, the, the, all those, those regional specific nuances that will make or break a business. When you're in that area, you understand it better. You have the language better, um, the culture. So we we operate through that, through our master franchisees. And with that, you know, their franchisees become our sub-franchisees. So we're all still connected under the same umbrella, but our franchisees in Chile, in Brazil, have the benefit to an entire dedicated team in their area that is translating things. You know, we push things out, the Brazil team translates it to Portuguese. Um, you know, they make everything that in a way is regionally appropriate instead of just U.S. pushing things out and expecting all these other countries to operate as if the, the U.S. does in, in the same manner. Um, so the international directs that we own are limited right now to um, Canada, Australia. Uh, we have one school in Philippines. Um, and then we have a school in Ireland who is actually an owner here in U.S. as well. Um, but uh, for the most part, our, our goal is to continue with that growth because it's been incredibly successful. Uh, I actually just got back from visiting our many of our schools down in Brazil, and it's incredible to see it's like the version of the School of Rock corporate office here down there and how dedicated their team is and out on the road and with their franchisees and also, you know, running their company-owned schools. So it's, it's the same model, but it's more effective. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about something. The other day, I read about a COO writing about when the going gets difficult and how they were happy to be in the CEO mastermind group that they were. It made me remember that that's why I started the COO Alliance. It's a peer group and community for COOs and seconds in command of companies doing 5 million to 250 million in revenue. Our core group meets monthly online with other companies like yours. It's amazing because you get your frame broken tons of times and when you think there's only one way to do something and one way to feel about something, you get your perspective completely changed on a regular basis. We also host hundreds of COOs on our monthly mastermind calls and smaller groups twice a year at our in-person COO Connect events. So if you're the founder or owner of a fast-growing company, tell your COO to check it out. And if you are the COO, 
head on over to the COOalliance.com to learn more about becoming a member today. All right, back to the podcast. Does anything change with the School of Rock as music has started to change? I mean, I was at a three-day music festival this weekend, and there was not a single rock band or instrument on the stage. Yeah, there was. Somebody played guitar, but there was a DJ that was the front man, front person. Does your model change or iterate now that music is so different than what it was when, I don't know, 30 years ago? Um, yeah, I mean, it'll always change, but we always stick to that core of, you know, we're a school of rock, but we're not limited to rock and roll. However, you know, we have 60 core shows that we have created that will focus on, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. And, you know, there's some that are focused on jazz and, you know, all different genres of music. And we choose these shows and the songs within those shows specifically because of the educational value within them as well. So as they're learning how to play these songs, as they're learning how to play these chords, we're able to then connect it to that music theory concept that is embedded in that song. And that's how we back into the uncool stuff of rock and roll. Now, with that said, our schools are not required to only run those core shows. Um, most of our schools will have a good mix. So our school in Seattle typically has, you know, heavier grunge shows. I lived in Seattle in 1993. I was there. I watched Nirvana. I watched Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, I was like right in the middle of the grunge. I lived two blocks away from Kurt Cobain. It was fucking oh, amazing. amazing. Loved that's it. amazing. Yeah. And, you know, our schools down in South America or out in Europe, you know, they'll, they'll play, you know, some songs specific to their region also. So, you know, we have all that flexibility. Um, we actually have a, a Taylor Swift camp that's being tested in one of our schools this year. So we're all like watching. We're like curious how this one's going to go. It may sell out completely as soon as it goes sale. Um, but we're always looking for you know, what, what are the kids interested in? Where is the educational value in it and finding the perfect blend of Yeah. And I don't think it's a death nail to your model at all for the next 50 years. Like I think kids are still super interested in rock and in music and in instruments for sure. I took my kids to a Who concert two years ago in Vancouver and they played on stage with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. There was a 67 page symphony orchestra playing with the Who. And I was like, whoa, mind blown. It was a spectacular. All right. I want to flip the script a little bit. You are not rare. Um, we've got a, a, what's called the COO Alliance. So we have a network of second in commands from 17 countries that are members of the COO Alliance. 38% of our members are women, um, which is pretty good considering I think we probably 45% from US and Canada are women, but 35% or 38 global. But you're playing a senior role, an executive, a COO role, and it's not that normal for women to be in the C-suite, or it wasn't. I mean, I think the, the most well-known second-in-command ever is Sheryl Sandberg, who is the COO of Facebook. So certainly, you know, you're there. But what are some of the idiosyncrasies that women face or some of the struggles that women face um, in the C-suite? And are they, are they not disappearing? Are they getting better? Yeah, um, I think it's getting, I know it's getting better, Cameron. Because I watch the numbers quite closely. Um, it's just moving very slowly. So last year, it was 26% of C-suite roles in US were held by women. Um, as of you know, last month, it's 
So we're still very far off. And it's interesting because men and women join the workforce at the same rate. Um, but it's when it reaches that point of senior liter- leadership, of VP level, that there's just a drop off. And, you know, for every 10 men who are promoted, it's only seven women. And then the gap gets wider and wider and wider. And it's, it is improving. And there's been incredible, you know, people in these seats like Cheryl, who, you know, I've, I've read that book so many times. I've gifted that book to so many different women. Um, but it's, it is a struggle. You know, women have to find this balance um, between, you know, being assertive, but not aggressive. And, you know, being compassionate, but not emotional. Um, you know, there's these, these, these tags that are put on women um, that are just different with the same action of a man. Um, you know, in a meeting, a woman is, is three times more likely to be interrupted. So, you know, it's finding that balance of, hey, may I finish my sentence, but not being the bitch in the room at the same time because I'm the woman. So, you know, throughout my career, I have many times, you know, more times than I can count, sat at a boardroom table and have counted the people around the table. And it's typically along the lines of three women. One is there taking notes and the rest of them are are white men around the table. And, you know, it's easy to feel like you don't belong. And it's easy to get intimidated in those situations. And that's where, you know, Cheryl's statement of lean in, you know, take up your space, you know, remember you're in that room because you belong in it. So, you know, for me personally, I've, I've fought very hard in corporate America. It's, it's tough for women in the music industry. It's even tougher. Um, and the numbers are even, even worse. Um, so when I, when I was awarded the COO role, a few years back, I felt a increased level of responsibility um, to play my role for the women coming up after me, and you know the the young girls who are starting off their education now and looking for these role models for them to look up to. Um, so, with that in mind, myself and a colleague, we launched a group called Front Women. Um, you could visit it at frontwomen.org. It's something we're incredibly proud of. And it's just a community resource group. And, you know, quarterly, we send out newsletters where we will interview just some incredible powerhouse women in every industry and just ask them some of the questions, you know, what was most challenging for you? What did you learn? What's your favorite book and resource? Um, And then we also do quarterly meetings where we all get together and we talk through things like how to how to acknowledge microaggressions, you know, how to battle those, how to bring in more allies after the Me Too movement. Um, So it's all about empowering each other, working together, learning with each other. And, you know, I'm really proud to say that there's there's men and women who join those meetings. Um, The conversations, I always walk away from them feeling so inspired um, because no matter how much preparation and research I do for these calls, I'm always learning more just in the conversations and hearing it. And, you know, a lot of it is just knowing that you're you're not alone. Um, so, you know, it's not something we're going to ignore. We're going to continue to push and break the barriers because, you know, all of the little girls coming up behind us, they deserve a path with 
less hurdles and less, you know, bumps than I had to endure. And, you know, although it's a slow grow, we're, we're moving in the right direction and we're going to keep pushing. It's great. I'm glad you're doing the work. I I was the only male in um, a room of 400 women. I was invited in to speak to a, whim, a group of women executives in Canada around 10 years ago. And I had, I was supposed to give the male perspective on women in the workforce. And it was at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I, I think the first thing I said was, I'm kind of fucked right now. Like if I say exactly what I feel, I'm fucked. And if I don't say exactly what I feel, you're going to give me shit for, for sugarcoating it all. Does anybody have a bottle of scotch? I need a drink. I know it's only 10 a.m., but I just want to chug a couple of drinks. And then I was the only male to address the 400 female C, uh, franchisees from McDonald's. And so I got to do the same talk. And I, I felt very privileged. And after that, I ended up being invited to the TED Women Conference. And I was one of 50 men in a room of 750 women. There was only 50 of us there. And I went to it twice. It was really profoundly impactful. One of the things that, so I, I love the work you're doing. I think it's very important that you're doing. I think you're absolutely bang on, on the, the needs and what's happening. I'm curious, what is your thought around one of the many reasons why it's happening is that women tend to drop out of the workforce at 30s, mid 30s for five to 15 years to have kids. Is that part of the reason why it's not 50 50? Because they're just not there. When the men are moving from director to VP to C-level, the women tend to be at home. At least my wife was. She dropped out at the, and, and went home and raised our two kids. And then when she came back to work, they're not going to take somebody who's been out of the workforce just because she's the same age as me and plug me in at the COO. Is that one of the reasons why it happens? Or And, and if so, does that make it more like 60-40 is the, 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 the bar that we're shooting for? Or, or am I completely out to lunch? No, I mean, that that could be one of the causes of it. But, you know, I think one of the things to remember is when when women are going for promotions, when they're being interviewed, you know, when even just in conversations, I mean, I'm I'm sure if we compared notes of how many times you were asked if you plan to have children versus how many times I was asked if I plan to have children. Um, you know, it would be vastly different. Well, and it's worse in Canada. In Canada, women get 12 months maternity leave and the company has to hold the role for them. So there's a massive bias against that. In the US, what's mat leave in the US? Is it three months or six weeks? I think it varies so greatly from one organization to another, but I, I don't know what the average is. Um, but I know that it's it's nowhere near what other countries are doing in the US. I've definitely felt the bias. I mean, I've definitely felt sitting there and interviewing somebody and going, God, I fucking love them. And I fucking hope they don't leave to go have kids next year in three years. Um, but I would also you never think that of a man. No, exactly. But I would definitely, I would, I would also at the same time, only because I, I think women are just better as executives and managers and leaders than men are. They multitask better. They are better at communication. They are better at managing conflict. They are more inclusive. I just think they're actually fucking better. I think they write better, think better. Like, yeah. So um, anyway, I'm glad you're doing the work. I think it's very important. Um, and after all, it is 2023. I mean, it's time to get our shit together, right? Time to get our shit together. It really is. Um, especially, you know, I said 28% of women in C-suite roles, it's 6% women of color. I mean, you know, when you start to to really dig it down and the the diversity is just, it's appalling. 
Yeah, that, that's sorry. I almost cut you off. I like careful <laughs> right after you said women. Get <laughs> I will call you out. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a massive problem as well. Like women of color and people of color. Like it's just so fucking blatantly obvious at that point that that is a big problem. You said something, and I think it was before we went live that I want to go back and ask you about. And before I forget, what instrument do you play? I play the keyboard on my laptop, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Something in my gut was like, and you don't play an instrument. <laughs> so I have a keyboard. I have a beautiful guitar. I can okay. play very little on both. Yeah. And you know, the, the worst part of this is every other year we do our international convention, all franchisee staff from all over the world come in and our most favorite night of convention is our jam night. So we rent out a, a, a top class huge venue we bring in food you know backline to the nine and we just jam for hours so owners staff members corporate team members all get on and one year franchisee dragged me on and i will tell you i played a mean tambourine that year like very mean i was really good at it so every (laughs) it wasn't a cowbell it was a tambourine i had the whole shake going and all that's great um and every year myself and another franchisee who also doesn't play we say next time we're getting on stage we're starting lessons next week and i started lessons during covid and then travel picked up again and uh, i became that customer that had six classes i had missed and needed to make up i was being charged again for the new month i wasn't making my classes and finally i had to say all right you know i am a i'm, I'm gonna come back and I am, I'm waiting for one to open in my town. So it's a little easier. Well, so here's my message to every mom and dad and every new mom and dad coming up. Don't get your kids into piano lessons when they're young. It takes too long to get competent and it's so freaking frustrating. And you can't pick up your piano and take it to college and you can't take it to your summer home or your, you like, teach them to play guitar. Because guitar, you can actually get reasonably competent as a kid within two or three months that you feel good about yourself. And then once you've played it for six, seven years, you can take your guitar everywhere with you. My parents had me in piano lessons for four years and I can't play shit. And I'm so frustrated, but I'm with you. I, I'm, I started taking guitar lessons, then I started traveling. It is absolutely on the top of my list to go learn it. We, we will have you playing a song in one class. All we need is 30 minutes with you, and whatever your instrument of choice is, we will have you playing a song by the end of that class. Then I, I will be guitar. Here's the question I want to ask about that you mentioned when we were behind the scenes before going live. You said something about the mental health aspect of School of Rock. Walk me through that. What is that? Is that kind of like equine therapy when you get kids working with horses? What is the mental health aspect of the School of Rock? I'm super intrigued. Yeah. So, you know, I, I alluded to this before, you know, all we care about is the music. You know, we don't care about your pronoun association, your gender, your skin color, your hair color, the clothes that you wear. Um, all we want to do is is play great music and have fun together and everything else doesn't matter. So School of Rock with that has become the place and the home for kids that felt like they didn't necessarily fit in anywhere else. Um, because at School of Rock, they can truly be whoever they are. And, and we celebrate that on on every single level. So, you know, we say that we sell music education. But what we actually provide is, you know, increased self-confidence, 
and, you know, help with, with depression and with suicidal ideations and, you know, creating this sense of belonging and this, this place where it's just safe and comfortable and fun. And all of a sudden, you know, having this whole crew of, of friends when you didn't really think you would ever have friends. And, you know, in, in my nine years here, I've, I've collected thousands of stories. I've had so many parents come up to me and say, you know, you've saved my child's life. Thank you. Before School of Rock, they wouldn't pick up their head. They would only look at the ground. And all of a sudden, now they're on stage and doing a ripping guitar solo or, you know, belting and singing and, and leading the whole crew. And it's these transformations are real and last a lifetime. And you know, I've spent my entire life and my career in youth enrichment, in education, and actually came to School of Rock as a consultant with no intention of staying and had to convince myself, all right, you know, it's it's music education, but it, it's still education. You're still enriching children's lives. And very quickly, very quickly, I learned that it was by far the most profound impact that I was having on enriching children's lives and decided to stay long-term and came in with no intention of staying and now have no intention of leaving. So It's amazing. I heard a saying years ago, and it was, you sell them what they want, you give them what they need. And it's like, we're, we're, we're going to sell you on learning a musical instrument and learning about music, but that's not what you're here for. And we're not going to tell you what you're here for because you wouldn't join. But you're making, you're making happier, more connected people who are it's like the butterfly effect. You're tilting the universe. Yeah. And we are proud partners with the Society for the Prevention of Teen Suicide. And, you know, more than anything, we work to eliminate that stigma that you can't talk about it, that it's not okay to not be okay. Um, you know, we want people to feel comfortable. We want our students to know that it is okay to feel sad some days. Um, and here's some tactics that could help you get through it. And here's some trusted adults that you can speak to to help you navigate through it. And, you know, it is the the mental health crisis amongst youth is is by far it's it's scary right now. And especially you know, post COVID. Especially post COVID. And for us, COVID wasn't the first pandemic that we encountered, you know, the, the mental health crisis and youth was. And then since COVID, that only made it worse. All right. I want you to go back to the 21, 22 year old Stacey Ryan and give yourself some advice. And it can't be go do your guitar lesson. What advice, <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give the younger you that you know to be true today? You know, I think about that a lot because I talk about it a lot with other other women, um, you know, earlier on in their career where I was. And my advice would to myself would be to to keep pushing and to believe in yourself. And, you know, as as a woman, you know, early on in my career, I was given the advice to pull back my hair and put on lipstick. And that would help me be more effective in selling programs. Um, to parents. And, you know, those types of things make you stop and question like, do I need to, I don't like wearing lipstick, you know, do I need to wear lipstick to be successful professionally? Um, so I think the most important thing is listening to your gut and staying true to who you are. You know, I, I 
left an organization because it was molding me to be a manager that I wasn't proud of when I looked in the mirror. So I took a really scary leap and and left. I left with no other job prospect on the horizon. I just said, this is this is not what I want to be in my career and in my life. And it was the best decision I ever made. And it, you know, led me to my next organization, which brought me here to School of Rock. So I think the most important thing is be true to you, know who you want to be and how you want to lead. Um, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise or influence you otherwise. I love that. Stacy Ryan, the COO at School of Rock, and then Erica M., the video DJ from Much Music Canada. Thank you for introducing me to the School of Rock. And Stacy, thank you for scaling it and growing with us and sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.